I live in Ukraine, I live in Kiev, I speak to Ukrainians every day, and these people are about to have everything that they love in, in their life taken away from them. Welcome to Skim This. It finally happened. Russia has launched a major invasion of Ukraine. We know that the headlines probably feel scary and really chaotic right now. So we're going to cut through the noise by talking to two experts in Europe about what we can expect next. Russia has a lot of tricks in the bag to destabilize Ukraine. They can cut out power, communications lines, phone and internet so that people can't talk to each other, make sure their loved ones are safe, can't check the internet to know what's going on or how close or far away the danger is. We're also going to look at headlines from around the world, from a major new report about maternal health in the pandemic to countries dropping their COVID restrictions. We'll also skim a major victory for equal pay, and we'll end on some tips about how to stay safe while online dating by avoiding some of the catfish in the sea. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... 49 states now in the country now lifting or planning to lift mask mandates. Boris Johnson is pushing ahead with an end to almost all restrictions to contain the virus. Hugs and gifts of Vegemite at Australia's biggest airport on Monday as it buzzed with reunited family and friends. More countries are moving into a new phase of the pandemic. Over the past two weeks, COVID cases have fallen in the U.S., and 49 states have announced plans to drop their mask mandates. Last Thursday, California even became the first state to unveil its plan to treat COVID as endemic, a major shift for the most populated state in the country. Meanwhile, across the pond, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced this week that England was dropping its major restrictions, including self-isolation laws and its mass testing program, just as the Queen recovers from COVID. And down under in Australia, tourists began entering the country on Monday for the first time since the pandemic began. Still, not every place is ready to move on. Hong Kong is dealing with its worst outbreak yet and just announced its more than 7 million residents will be required to get tested three times starting in March to try to control the spread. Zooming out, politicians around the world are amending public health protocols as many experts warn it's too soon to declare COVID over anywhere. But calls to live with the virus are only likely to continue. To hear what two doctors think about what it means to live with COVID, check out last week's episode. Okay, next headline. A new report shows that maternal deaths rose by 14% during the first year of the pandemic. Here's the context. The National Center of Health Statistics released a report on Wednesday that revealed the number of women in the U.S. who died during pregnancy or soon after giving birth increased significantly in 2020. The U.S. already had the highest maternal death rate in the developed world before this report came out. And these recent findings reveal that the pandemic has had an outsized impact on maternal health. From prenatal appointments being disrupted or canceled to pregnant women being at greater risk of severe disease from a COVID-19 infection. 
We should also point out, this latest data shows that deaths spiked for both Black and Hispanic women. In fact, the death rate for Black women specifically was almost three times the rate of white women. But the racial disparities here aren't new. Black women have long had a higher maternal mortality rate due to structural inequities and bias in the healthcare system. Experts and doctors say, unfortunately, the findings from this latest study aren't surprising. But moving forward, they hope that listening to pregnant women and improving access to healthcare via legislation can start to bring those rates down. And our final headline this week. Major outrage in Texas today. On Tuesday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott sent a letter to a bunch of state agencies saying gender-affirming medical care for trans adolescents is child abuse and they have to investigate it. He meant things like drugs and hormones to suppress puberty, which are considered standard treatments for trans kids. Abbott is saying doctors, nurses, teachers, and juvenile detention officers who come into contact with kids getting this kind of care have to report it, or they'll face criminal penalties. Advocates and medical experts say this is terrible for trans kids because access to this kind of treatment leads to lower rates of depression and suicide. Even though this announcement came from the governor, it doesn't mean that the law has actually changed in Texas. It's not clear if state agencies are going to obey it, and some district attorneys in Texas are saying this is designed to scare people and no way are we going to enforce it. That leaves trans kids, their families, and medical professionals across the state wondering where they stand. And they aren't alone. Last year, state lawmakers across the country introduced a record number of new bills aimed at trans children, mostly banning them from playing on sports teams that align with their gender identity. We'll also point out the timing of this Texas order isn't lost on people. Governor Abbott is heading into a contested primary election next week, and he might be counting on his controversial mandate to give him a boost among conservative voters. This week, the U.S. women's national soccer team scored one of its biggest goals yet. A gender pay gap has been at the crux of a long-running legal dispute between U.S. soccer and its players. Those demands now met with an historic agreement. They settled a long-running lawsuit over equal pay with their employer, the U.S. Soccer Federation, to the tune of $24 million. This settlement is being hailed as a milestone in the fight for pay equity, on the field and off. So we're going to break down what you need to know in 60 seconds. The rivalry between the women's national team and U.S. soccer goes back to 2016, when some star players, including Megan Rapinoe and Alex Morgan, filed a complaint with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They told the EEOC the men are getting paid more than us, even though we're winning more championships. How many more trophies are we talking about? The women's team has won the World Cup four times since the program started in 1985 and earned Summer Olympics gold medals in 2004, 2008, and 2012, while the men's team hasn't reached a semifinal since 1930. In response to the accusation that it was playing favorites, U.S. soccer pushed back and said the men bring in bigger audiences. 
So in 2019, the women's team took the fight to a new arena and sued in federal court. When they won the World Cup in France that year, they celebrated while the crowds chanted this. After that, the lawsuit got ugly. The U.S. soccer lawyers argued that there was, quote, indisputable science that proved the players on the women's national team were inferior to the men. That pissed off a lot of people who said, could you make a more sexist argument? Things got so heated that the president of U.S. soccer even resigned over this. But then, after getting past that roadblock, the women had to face their next opponent, a federal judge, who rejected the players' claims that they were paid less for the same work. Not willing to throw in the towel, the players appealed, and this week they finally settled with U.S. soccer. Most of the $24 million they're getting is back pay for dozens of players, which is basically an acknowledgement that U.S. soccer was, in fact, underpaying female players for years. Most notably, the Federation promised to pay the men's and women's teams equally moving forward. The deal isn't officially sealed on that yet, but the players are saying, we're taking the W on this one. Clear eyes, equal pay, can't lose. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. One day before the second anniversary of Ahmaud Arbery's death, the three men convicted of his murder were found guilty on federal hate crimes charges. Last fall, Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Roddy Bryan were convicted of murdering Arbery. This year, they faced another trial to determine whether Arbery's killing was racially motivated. And on Tuesday, after hearing the evidence, a jury came back and said it was. According to the Washington Post, this is the first race-based conviction in any of the high-profile murders of Black Americans in 2020. To hear why this case could mark a turning point in how we prosecute hate, we called up Arusha Gordon. She's the associate director of the James Byrd Jr. Center to Stop Hate at the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Arusha, thanks for joining us. This case is one of the most high-profile hate crimes trial in years. And for our audience, can you just explain why this was a big victory for the Justice Department and for racial justice? I would start by just talking about the unique nature of hate crimes. Hate crimes, unlike other crimes, are messaging crimes. They send a message not just to the individual victim, but to anyone who shares the victim's identity that was targeted, that they're not safe in that community. And so here it sent a message to Black Americans across the country that it's not safe to go for a run. It's not safe to be in your own neighborhood. And that is why it's so important to hold people accountable for these types of hate crimes, because it sends a response that we as a country will not tolerate this type of hate. And that's why, you know, the decision yesterday was just so critical. It really shows that as a country, we're standing up and saying no to this type of hate. In the past, why has it been so difficult to prosecute hate crimes? A prosecutor bringing a hate crimes charge has to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, usually, that the defendant committed the crime with a very specific bias motivation. And people are complicated and proving that type of intent can be really difficult. Defendants might not be explicit that they are targeting a victim because of 
the victim's race or sexual orientation or gender or other protected category, they might be more nuanced. And so finding that evidence can be at times difficult. You know, sometimes it is much more clear cut than others. So for instance, in the case of the El Paso shooting in Walmart or other mass shootings, sometimes there are manifestos left. So for instance, in the Dylan Roof case, where members of a historically Black congregation were gunned down, there was evidence of bias motivation in online posts. And so really, it can be tricky when defendants don't have those kinds of clear messages around their motivation, but not impossible. And so I think law enforcement and prosecutors have a duty to really look hard for evidence, look at social media groups, look at tattoos on the perpetrator, look at what people have said to family and friends around their beliefs regarding the targeted group. And so I think really looking at that evidence requires a lot of work. What needs to actually change in our judicial system to prosecute hate crimes properly? Yeah, two things I would point to. One is just training law enforcement and prosecutors to bring these cases to really help establish trust with the communities that law enforcement is serving. Again, if the community does not trust their local law enforcement, they're not going to go to local law enforcement and say, hey, there was a swastika drawn on my synagogue, or I've been getting racist messages. And so building that trust with community before a crime happens is just critical. And training law enforcement on how to build that trust and then how to respond appropriately in the wake of a hate crime is essential. And what does that response look like? So Lawyers Committee, along with partners, does training for law enforcement that kind of discuss this issue of what does a good response in the wake of a hate crime look like? Sometimes you see, for instance, first statement coming out of a local police department in the wake of a hate crime can really do a lot of damage if it's not done correctly. So if you say something like, and this happened recently, you know, the perpetrator here was having a bad day. Well, That just dismisses the impact on the local community versus one police department recently where there was a hate crime last year. The police department had their deputies go door to door in the community, checking in with people and saying, if you need mental health resources, here's where you can go. We understand that this type of crime has an impact that's really different, again, from other crimes, that it it can really impact you if you are a member of the targeted group and make you feel a lack of safety. Do our hate crimes laws need to be strengthened? So I think, yes, in the sense that in many states, the protected categories are not extensive. So, you know, some states don't protect people who are targeted on the basis of their sexual orientation. But I will also say that we don't want to perpetuate problems and disparities we see in the criminal justice system at large by exclusively relying on hate crime laws to address the underlying problem of hate. Yeah, I was going to ask you if hate crime laws had actually deterred hate crimes from being committed, and it really doesn't sound like that's the case. Yeah, I think the data does not show that it has a deterrent effect. And so I think finding out what does is, is critical. And my last question for you is, do you think this trial marked a turning point in how we think about hate crimes in the U.S. What is the legacy of this trial and this decision going to be? I think it's important because, again, it sends that message that 
you will be held accountable. It sends a warning for people not to engage in vigilante justice, to not try and assume one's intent just based off the color of someone's skin. This case just highlights the extent to which racist stereotypes are at play and the white privilege that goes into someone thinking they can just enforce the law with their own hands without, you know, thinking twice about what that might mean. Arusha, thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Alex. Bye. You can find a bit of everything on Tinder, but one little swipe can change your life. Online dating isn't easy, and Netflix's latest true crime documentary, The Tinder Swindler, is showing how much love can hurt us and our wallets. The documentary interviews multiple women who got scammed out of hundreds of thousands of dollars all by the same man after first meeting him on the dating app Tinder. And it turns out, people on dating apps are a big target for scammers. The Federal Trade Commission released data that said, quote, Romance scams reached a record high last year, up nearly 80% from 2020, with the largest increase in scam reports coming from 18 to 29-year-olds. And these scams aren't just about straight-up cash. They can come in different forms, like gift cards and even cryptocurrency. So to break down why this is happening and ways we can all stay safe while swiping, we called in some pros. I'm Yue Shu, co-host of The Dateable Podcast. And I'm Julie Krafchick, co-host of The Dateable Podcast. I think people have been scamming people since whenever social networks started. I mean, people have been scamming people on LinkedIn, Facebook, you name it. And it just seems dating apps are the next level of it because you're tugging on people's heartstrings, people want to connect. So it's, it seems like it's a natural progression. I think also during the pandemic, just more dating shifted to online. It just became more prominent, but it was always there for sure. Yue told us a lot of these scammers, including the Tinder swindler, trick people into believing they've found love in a hopeless place. These scam artists are doing the opposite of bad dating behavior. And in recent years, we've normalized bad dating behavior. You hear ghosting, breadcrumbing, benching, roaching, all the terms that show that people are trying to show as least amount of interest as possible when they first start dating someone. And what these scam artists are doing is, I'm going to show you the most amount of interest as possible in the beginning to get you and to make sure that I stand out among the rest. So it's a very easy way to get daters in their web. And Julie noted that even though the Tinder swindler met people IRL before asking them for money, not all scammers follow that same blueprint. There's the ones that will never meet up with you that are catfishers, and they probably have a zillion excuses why they can never meet in person, why they can't take that video call, why they can't show their face. Most likely, they don't even live remotely near you, and they're posing to be someone that either lives nearby or they've made up some reason why they can't see you. And in this case, a lot of times, too, we notice that they only want to talk on WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. They're 
really resistant to giving much personal information, phone numbers. We hear from our listeners all the time of these people that will not move away from WhatsApp. And to us, that's the number one sign that this is a scam. Okay, so only using WhatsApp is a big red flag. What are some others? I think a huge red flag is, do you feel like you're in control or are you in their hands? And what I mean by this is a scam artist will always say, well, let's talk on this day or Mm -hmm. let's video chat this time. It's never on your time. And at first it may feel like this person's taking control. They're taking initiative. But when you look back through all of your communication, huge red flag if everything's on their terms. Yeah, I think another one, too, is excessive love bombing. You know, so many times in dating, people aren't willing to put themselves out there. But the flip side is when someone makes you their universe when they've never met you before. Or in the case of Tinder Swindler, when you had one date and then this guy is texting every morning saying, I love you and all this stuff that's so over the top. And it's hard to not fall for it because I think inherently people want that feeling. But when it's too soon, too fast, we do need to take a second to see if it's too good to be true. Anything involving money, (laughs) run, run. If they're asking for money, they're in dire need of money, they want you to donate to a cause, run the other direction. That is just the biggest red flag ever. All of this can seem a little overwhelming. I mean, dating is already stressful enough without all that extra heartbreak. So we asked UA and Julie for some tips on ways we can swipe safely. One that came out of the pandemic really is doing video calls or getting on the phone before meeting up in person. Now, in the case of the Tinder swindler, that would not have helped. But in most cases, at least the people who are trying to scam you don't want to get on a video call or they don't want you to hear their voice. Another tip is to meet at a place that you feel comfortable at. Maybe it's a bar where you know the bartender. When you are kind of in your element, all the odds are stacked for you instead of against you. I think this goes without saying, but we'll repeat it anyways, is to meet in a public place. We do hear of situations, especially during the pandemic, when it wasn't as easy to or if it's cold out and people were going to one another's homes. And there is a false intimacy that can happen on dating apps. And it's a balance because we don't want to go into every interaction thinking that this person's going to scab us and they're not going to be honest. But we also need to remember that this is a stranger. An interesting tip to add is make your dating profile as unique as possible from the rest of your web presence. So meaning using photos that are unique to your dating profile, not giving away too much personal detail. Don't reveal which company you work at because these scam artists will take your personal information and then they'll use it to scam you. Yeah, we've even heard like photos, they can reverse Google search them. So that's why it's important to have photos that aren't tied to your Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn. Other tips include sharing your location on Find My Friends with your group chat or your sibling or anyone you feel comfortable with and letting them know the time and location of your first date and checking in with them during and after. You can also do a reverse image search of your potential match to see if they're legit or if they're using a stock photo or a stolen photo of an Instagram model. Also, don't let your date pick you up or drop you off. And finally, get familiar with the safety features on different dating apps and feel free to use them. 
For instance, apps like Tinder and Bumble have an ID verification feature, and asking someone to get verified only takes a few minutes. If we've learned anything from watching and group texting about the Tinder swindler, it's that online dating doesn't always lead to finding your perfect match. But there are ways to navigate the risks, all while swiping right. I don't want people to feel discouraged by dating apps because of this, because the reality is the majority of people are still using them for the right intention, to meet someone and to find love. That being said, I think we need to just be realistic of them that this is someone that we don't know. So I think it's stepping away for a minute and saying, okay, is this too good to be true? If it is, is there ways that I can pull it back a little just to like protect myself and also kind of, you know, see if there is a connection, but being smart, but not being scared at the same time. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our head of audio, Graylin Brashear. We had additional help this week from Hannah Parker, and our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career, with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. <laughs> <laughs>